Alright guys, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn uh, to Ruth chapter 3. We're also going to have it up on the screen for you. Uh, it is a uh, joy to be up here with you. I'm, uh, Kaylee and I have loved being at Anthology for two months now, so it's been awesome. We love being here in LA and being with you guys. So um, I'm going to jump right in today. Let's uh, recap really quickly what we've already seen in the book of Ruth and the story. So we see this lady, Naomi, and her family. She's got her husband, and they uh, move out of their land because of a famine. So the land of Israel and Bethlehem, the house of bread, there's no bread in the house of bread, so they have to leave. They have to go to a foreign country and leave their land, leave their stuff, leave everything behind. And so they do. They go, and they leave all those things behind. Well, Naomi gets there, and then her husband dies. Um, but she still has this heritage in her, in her sons and their wives. But then her sons die. And so then she's left with no grandchildren and two daughters-in-law. And they have nothing and they have no way to take care of themselves. And so, long story short, Orpah leaves her and Ruth stays. Ruth has faith in Naomi and she says, you know what, I'm going to stick with you. And Ruth has faith in God and she says, your God will be my God. And so Ruth goes with Naomi back to their homeland in the hopes that they can get food, and they can um, not only find food, but find their heritage again, find legacy, find purpose, find family again. So they go back to the house of bread, and they're looking for food. And then Ruth, uh, not waiting on anyone to care for her, goes out, and she begins going and getting food herself. She goes out into the fields of Israel, and she's protected by the laws of Israel that say, to the farmers, to the guys that own this land, and they say, you must leave a portion of your crop for, for the sojourner and the stranger, for the widows and the orphans and people that cannot take care of themselves, leave some for them. So Ruth is gleaning. She's taking bread, taking what she needs uh, from those sections of the field, and then she bumps into this guy named Boaz. And Boaz, being the kind, strapping gentleman that he is, says, hey, here's some extra food. Tell you what, more than that, let me take care of you. I'm going to make sure that you're safe here. In fact, you need to stay here and let me take care of you. I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to give you everything that you need. I'm going to provide for your needs if you stay here. And so Ruth goes back and tells Naomi what happened. And Naomi says, this is good news because she's scheming. Uh, Naomi is scheming in the best way. She's trying to find Ruth a husband and, and therefore find herself some granddaughters. Now, this is not all that's happening here. There's a bigger story going on. Because we see that Naomi has been through the depths of grief and sorrow. She's lost her family. She's been through this uh, sorrow and grief that's led to bitterness. And we see that in the book where she comes on and says, Don't call me Naomi. You just need to call me Mara. But call me bitter. Because God has gone out against me. God has exerted effort against me. He has worked hard to show that He doesn't care about me. That's essentially what she's saying. But we see on the flip side that Naomi's faith is not gone. She never denies God outright. She says that he's, he's gone out against me, but she still believes in God. And moreover, she still believes in God's promise. She still believes that there's hope for her back in the land, in the promised land, mind you. Remember, God leads His people into the promised land, which is Israel. And then the irony is they have to leave the promised land because there's no food. There's no, there's no provision in the promised land. So they have to leave and say, so, you know, we're going to go back to God's promised land because we believe in His promise. He's going to provide for us there. So they go back, and then we meet Boaz. And then we continue. So let's jump into Ruth 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. We'll start off with that. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, 
My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. And this is interesting right off the bat. This is a little bit scandalous, right? So after he's had all that he can eat and drink and has gone down by himself, you go track him down. And so even to us, this goes, wait, what? Put us some red flags. And this is one of those times where it's a little bit helpful. And we know that when we read the Bible, this is the Word of God. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. Um, it's useful for education and teaching and understanding the Word of God to us. And so we can read this book without background information and understand the gospel, understand that God is trying to tell us a certain message. But then there's some moments, like this one, where it's helpful to understand some details behind this so we can really understand the full breadth of what's happening. And in this case, this is especially scandalous for the original readers of this book. People that are reading Ruth, and they're going, that's really sketchy, why is she doing that? These, these are the... Uh, the Jews, the people of God, 3,000 years ago that are reading this going, this is really weird. Why is uh, Naomi telling Ruth to do this? And then let alone Ruth says she will. We also see here that Naomi tells Ruth, she says, uh, wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak. We see this elsewhere. We see this later. We see this with David, King David, who loses a son. David loses his son. He's in the middle of great sorrow and great grief. And so he is in mourning. And the way he shows his mourning is that he puts on his sackcloth, which is just a really uncomfortable basic garb, and he covers himself in ashes, and he's just dirty and filthy and mourning and weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of those things. But then at the end of it, he goes and he cleans himself off, he gets cleaned up, and he marches back out and takes back over his kingdom. And it's the same thing that's happening here. This is essentially moving on. So it's not that you don't remember your past, but it's saying, you know what, it's time for me to, uh, to use biblical terms, gird your loins, put your clothes back on, get yourself dressed, get yourself clean, get yourself presentable, and move on. So this is what's happening here. So Ruth has mourned, Ruth has been through the sorrow and the grief and the doubt, and at this point, Naomi's saying, it's time to move on. You have a new option here with Boaz. There is someone to provide for you, someone to redeem you. That's a big word that we're going to get to more. You have that in Boaz. So don't let this, don't let this go. Now's the time to move on. Now's the time to, to move on to this new opportunity that God has given us. And Ruth has faith in Naomi here. So the whole book of Ruth, indeed the whole work of Scripture, is a story of faith, right? It's a story of, of God's people and the story of God trying to bring His people to Him despite the separation of sin that we see in Genesis 3, where God makes everything perfect and beautiful and wonderful, sin enters the equation, and like a brick through a window, the universe is shattered, and we are fundamentally broken starting then. But God begins making a way even then. I'm going to make this all better. I'm going to bring you back to me. I'm going to bring you into my kingdom, things the way I want them to be. And so he starts doing that even then. And Ruth is just a small version of that big story. It's a story of faith and trust in something bigger than yourself. It's a story of faith that God is working in something bigger than my circumstances. So when you look at this with honed-in vision, 
and you see, gosh, Naomi really got the shaft here, didn't she? She lost her family. She lost her homeland. She lost her, her heritage. She's not going to have a family anymore. God just really hates her, doesn't she? If we just, just look at the small version, that's, what, that's the conclusion we must reach. But when we zoom out and, and, and look at this in the, in the, through the lens of God's faithfulness to His people, we see there must be something bigger going on here. And Naomi sees that, which is the setting of this story. Naomi sees there's something bigger going on. So this, this thing that she's telling Ruth to go do, it seems scandalous at first, but Naomi knows something. Naomi realized there's something bigger going on. Let's keep reading and see what that is. Verse 6, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? I wonder how he said it. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. We'll stop right there just for a second. So we see that this, this in principle, is a really scandalous thing. She goes down into the, into the uh, threshing floor where there's no one else there. Boaz has been winnowing grain, which I guess is really hot then. And, and so we're like, what, what is happening here? And again, there's something bigger going on. So Ruth goes into this, and we see that this could be really scandalous, but in actuality, it's not, because she goes down, she sits at his feet, and when he wakes up, probably because he has bare legs and there's wind blowing on them now, that would probably freak a guy out too. There's a woman right there, that's freaky. Okay, what's going on here, right? And uh, he says, who are you? I mean, he knows who she is. Um... So it scared the guy. But, but look at what's hap- what happens next. At her words, the next thing that comes out of her mouth. It's your servant Ruth. Now earlier in the book, we've seen her use the word servant. When, when she was um, taking the grain out of his field and she bumps into Boaz, she says, I'm your servant. Now the word servant there in Hebrew, the word she's using, is just saying, I'm your servant. Like we can serve each other by pouring each other a drink. Just pouring each other water or something like that. Um, that, that's the service she was talking about then. I'm, I'm your servant. Um, but this word for servant is very different. Um, DJ used a Lord of the Rings illustration last week, so I'm going to carry on that proud tradition and use another one. Um, in, uh, in, in Two Towers and Return to the King, you see Pippin and Mary, two characters, where they get separated, and they're in two different kingdoms. One's in Gondor and one's in uh, Rohan. I'm getting really nerdy really fast here. I'm trying to reel it back. But... Uh, so these guys, they commit to the kings of each of those places. They commit to serve those kings. And so those commitments are much bigger. Those commitments to serve are like, I submit my entire life to you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to meet every need that you have until I die. Which, whenever that is, my whole life from here on out is serving you. Uh, that's the sort of word for servant she's using here. I am committed to you from here on out. So it's not like she's trying to seduce him. She's offering herself to him for a lifetime commitment. She's saying, listen, if you will have me, I will commit the rest of my life to serve you. If you will help me. If you will redeem me. So we've seen also before, Boaz mentions uh, 
being covered under the, by the wings of Yahweh. So this is a really interesting phrase. Because when you read this, without any sort of Christian background, your first question is, is God a giant chicken? Like, why does he have wings? What's going on here, right? So, God's wings, what's happening here? And really, it's, it's, in the Bible, we know teaches in parables. It teaches in stories. It gives us illustrations. Just that this is, you know, I give you illustrations today, especially nerdy ones today. So, we give illustrations here. So, it's talking about just being covered, being sheltered, being protected is what's happening here. And so, Boaz talked about, may you be protected by God. And then she says, um, as I am protected by God, I want to be protected by you. I want you to protect me. I want you to take care of me. So this really is a great love story, isn't it? See, what, what was once scandal, scandalous five minutes ago has now become kind of romantic. Where it's like, wow, she's, she's come in and made this really great commitment with him. Now, I titled this message, The Righteousness of Man. We talked about that in Psalm 1 a minute ago. That the righteousness of man leads to good things. The righteous man is blessed. The righteous man is rewarded by God. And in this passage, we see a righteous man, right? We see Boaz. So Boaz's response here is not that he's totally tempted and he caves to his temptation. He looks at her and says, yeah, I will care for you. I will commit to you. That's big, isn't it? That's far greater than the love that we see in our culture. Because true love is pure and true love is selfless. Yet the culture that we live in, love is not that, is it? But we see this here. We see two people that are pursuing righteousness. They're pursuing goodness and something bigger than themselves. Like it's not just a wedding that they're looking forward to. It's that they're looking to see the promise that God has promised them fulfilled. That God will care for them and God will provide for them. We see also in this passage, again, if you're a Jewish reader to this, you're reading this a thousand years ago, two thousand, three thousand years ago. You look at this passage and it's going to remind you of something else in the Old Testament. In Genesis 19, you have Lot and his family. So you have Lot and Abraham. So they're related, and Lot goes with Abraham to a place he's supposed to be. And this is where the phrase, the grass is greener on the other side, comes from. Is where they get up on the top of the mountain and Lot looks out and sees really nice, beautiful green area. And then he looks where God has called them to be and it's a desert. And Lot says, you know what? I'm out of here. He goes to the nice green, the lush area, the Los Angeles of the Middle East. Uh, I couldn't help it. I've been here two months and the weather's amazing. I had to throw it in there. Uh, so they go to this lush place. So Lot leaves the promise of God. He says, you know what, I'm not going to trust God to provide for us later. I'm leaving now. I'm going to what I think looks best. The grass is greener on this side, so he goes there. Well, that doesn't work out for him, does it? Some of you heard this story. He goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, the most sinful place ever. And God destroys it. He burns it. And so Lot leaves, and his wife dies in the process because she, once again, didn't trust God. And so they go off. And here's where the really scandalous part gets to. They go off in the mountains. So you have Lot and his two daughters. And his two daughters are thinking, we have nothing. We have no family. We have no children. So let's carry on our legacy with our dad. So they go. What you think is going to happen happens. And they get pregnant by their dad. Twisted, right? But the same thing happens. They go in. They uncover his feet after they've gotten him drunk. And then he does the rest. That's a really perverted story, right? That's not really jacked up in the Bible. Now, 
the story of Ruth starts the same way. What This happening here points us back to Genesis 19. The language is the same. It's showing us the same story. But this story ends differently, doesn't it? Why does the story end differently? Because of their faith. They trust God. They trust that there's something bigger going on than their circumstances. We'll go on to verse 11. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Again, we see both are pursuing righteousness in this. It's interesting to see how oriented towards justice Boaz is. Like he's, in this moment now, he's had this woman offer himself to him off by himself, and he's still honorable. And then moreover than that, he is going to follow the letter of the law to a T. He could take her and get away with it. Like he could go ahead and take her into his family, and people would still applaud him for it. But he sees that there, there are rules in play here. And he says, you know what? We need to follow the letter of the law. We need to follow rules. We need to do what is just. The righteous man pursues justice. And that's what Boaz is doing here. He's pursuing not just what's better for him, not just what's better for Ruth, but what's better for everyone. Because that's what true justice looks like. So the righteous person does that. And so he responds and he says, well, we must follow the rules, we must follow the law, and so there is one nearer. So I'm going to go to him, I'm going to take care of this for you, but we're going to find out. If he will redeem you, then he will. But if he will allow me the opportunity to do it, then I will gladly do it. So both are pursuing righteousness. And Boaz is concerned about justice and what is best for all people. Now this is also in light. During this time, and the book just before this is, is Judges. The book of Judges, where Israel is basically this big lawless kingdom. And it's ruled by judges. Have you ever seen Judge Dredd? It's kind of like that. Basically the whole world is falling apart. There is no law. There is no justice. People do what they want. In fact, the recurring theme throughout the book, the words that are repeated over and over, is that... In those days, there was no king in Israel, so that every man did whatever was right in his own eyes. It's terrifying, isn't it? That the culture was defined by what was right in the eyes of each individual. But our culture is not so different, isn't it? We do whatever we feel is right as a culture. Whatever we feel at the time is what is true. Now, we do have more of a system for justice now than they did in Judges. But that shows us all the more the righteousness of Boaz. Where Boaz has the opportunity to do whatever he wants here. There is no system that's going to conquer what he says is true. What he says he wants. But even here, he pursues justice. He doesn't do what's right in his own eyes. He does what's right in God's eyes. He seeks to pursue that above all else. It's also interesting here. If we look back at verse... uh, 13, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now when we look at this with New Testament eyes, we tend to gloss over this statement, right? Because we know who the Lord lives, like who the Lord lives, and we go, yeah, he lives. 
Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose again so that we may have new life with him for eternity. But this was written well over a thousand years before that. So what's happening here? Who's the Lord that's alive? It's the same one. The Lord lives. We see that promise repeated over and over again in Scripture. When Jesus dies on the cross... It doesn't just pay for the sins of people afterwards. It pays for the sins of people in all time. When Jesus rises from the dead, it doesn't give new life to people that come afterwards. It gives new life to people throughout all time. Uh, If this remote is time, say we have the beginning to the end, and the death and resurrection of Jesus happens right in the middle, it, it has an effect that's bigger than all of it. So when it does that, I like to kind of form the infinity symbol around it because it's doing something that's bigger than all of time. So God comes in time, but He Himself is outside of time. He looks at the whole spectrum. He sees the whole thing beginning to end. And He sends His Son in at the opportune moment for His work in the right way at the right time. And it it is effectual for all people. And so when you read the Old Testament, you can read it. You can see Jesus. You don't see Him by name. But you see His work. You see the effect of what He's doing. Where we see that God's people are are following God to go into the promised land. They make it to the promised land. But it's not the real promised land, is it? Because they ran out of provision there. There was no more food they had to leave. So it's not the real promised land. Because in the real promised land, there's no lack of food. We never run out. And we don't get sick and we don't die. So there's another promised land that's coming. And all the lords, all the judges and all the kings of Israel, the lowercase lords, they all die. They all get sick. They all die. They all need food. So there must be something else going on here. There must be another land. There must be another king. There must be another lord that we haven't seen yet who's better than all of those things. And so, spoiler alert, this story carries on and it it, it becomes a part of the whole narrative of Scripture where Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, the great ruler of Israel, the great king who people thought was the king. They're now, because they're in the promised land, and he had this great king come up who was righteous. He's a man after God's own heart, as the Bible tells us. And he pursues the word of God. He pursues his wisdom and his precepts. He wrote Psalm 1 that we read earlier. Yet we see David sin. We see David fail. And we see David die. So there must be another king. Once again, this is a story about faith. These people had faith that there was something bigger than themselves. That God had given them a promise. And that God would follow through on His promise, even if they didn't see it in their own lives. So they lived, and they trusted God, and they followed Him, and they served Him, and they were rewarded for it. But then God used that in a much greater way. Let's read this last section, 14 through 18. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. 
For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Boaz, at this moment, is already providing for her. He's already saying, You you take all this back, and take this back to your mother-in-law. Reward her for her faith. That's what I'm reading here. Reward her for her faith. She believes in the promise. And so, take this back. I'm going to provide for you now. The faith of Boaz and the faith of Ruth and the faith of Naomi are bigger than the scope of this story. They see that the work of God, the love of God, the hope of God, faith in Him, results in action that's bigger than the story. Bigger than their story. Bigger than their lifespan. Bigger than their marriages. Because we see this carry on. We see that Boaz has a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who becomes King David. And then we carry on that lineage throughout the Old Testament. And the Old Testament ends, who will deliver God's people? And the next words the people hear from God, Matthew 1, the lineage of Jesus the Christ, from Adam to David to Joseph and Mary. This is one drop in a very large bucket, in a very long story of faith, of people working towards trusting in God better, following Him more fully, cultivating righteousness. Because we see this as a story of righteousness. This is a story of people that do good things, not because they're good things, but because they believe in something. Christianity is often misunderstood as the place you go to get convicted about being a bad person so that you get better. And that's all that we do. The church is to teach you how to act better, to be a better person. That's not what we do. The purpose of the church is to show you hope. And in turn, because of that hope, because of how that changes you, that changes the way you live. And so it means that you become more righteous. It means that you become more like the Lord who is alive. At Anthology Church, we try to do that in a lot of different ways. You heard about some of that earlier. You'll hear about some of it later in our announcements. But, I mean, this week we uh, went and picked 500-something pounds of fruit off of a tree and gave it to people. Uh, we uh, are a part of ministries giving food. We also work with an organization called International Justice Mission where we're seeking to end poverty and human trafficking in the valley because we know it's all around us. Uh, and so we're working in these ways because we have a hope, not just because these are good things, but because we believe that God uses these things. We believe that God has called us to Himself. And the result of our faith, the result of our trust in Him, is to do these things. Because we believe He's active. And we don't want to live our whole lives doing things that end when we die. We want to live our lives doing things that carry on into eternity. So we see this hope. And we see this love, this love that they show each other that's pure, that's selfless, that provides, and that redeems, ultimately. And the love of Christ does that for us. This story about Boaz and about his love for Ruth and the way that he provides for her is only a glimpse of the love God has for us and the way He provides for us. He's providing for us now. 
He provides for us a community, a church, a people of God through which to seek Him together and through which to rely on each other, to depend on each other, and to come to each other in our weakest moments. Where now, we, we have prayer requests, we have, um, we, we have had all sorts of trials and struggles and anxiety and stress and depression among our group, but we band together through that. Because we know that this world is broken. People do what is right in their own eyes. And even beyond that, the universe is fundamentally broken. Because there's just brokenness, there's sin. But we see that God has made a way for those things to be better through the work of Christ who came from the line of a couple of faithful people named Boaz and Ruth. And so you'll see more of the story next week. It's going to be followed through. DJ's going to wrap it up. And uh, we'll be able to, to finish it out, to explain it, and, and show you how this story is concluded, and then uh, remind of how it goes on farther. So um, in a second, we're going to take the table. And uh, the table of, of communion with, with the bread and the juice is for believers, for those who have committed to follow Christ, who have committed uh, their lives to Him, who trust in the promise. And if you don't believe in that promise yet, that's okay. Because now at this point, uh, we cannot offer you the table, we can't offer you Christ instead. We can offer to you that Redeemer who will deliver you from sin, who will deliver you from hopelessness and depression and anxiety and stress. where you're not totally free of it on this earth, but you have the eternal hope. And we have the hope now that He cares for us. He cares for the individual details of our lives. And we can trust in Him. You can trust in Him today. You can seek Him in His Word. And He responds to us, and we can trust in that. So we're going to pray, and then we will sing, and then we will take communion. So let's pray. Our good God, we thank You for Your graciousness to us. We thank You for providing for us. We thank You for the hope of redemption that we have through the work of Your Son, Jesus. We thank You for the Word that You've given us that we can read this book. This book is between two and 3,000 years old, depending on when each part was written, that we can read it and we can trust that this is Your Word and that we can learn from it and know that it applies to us today and that it changes the way we live today. God, we are so grateful for this, to help us live in light of it, help us to go this week, to pursue righteousness and holiness, that we may trust in You and gain an understanding that Your work and that Your promise is bigger than what we can see with our eyes and our lives now and our circumstances, that we can trust in You wholly through all of that. And so help us do that. Help us love You. Help us love You better. So God, we trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.